Welcome to Island Idols. I'm Barry Menikoff calling in from Honolulu and you are... Aaron Menikoff calling in from Atlanta and this is a podcast about books and life. Welcome back to Idol, Island Idols. This is episode 22 where we intend to talk about Ralph Ellison and about James Baldwin and to touch on that topic of the day, which is Black Lives Matter. Dad, it's good to see you. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. Weather's getting a little warm, but I'm not complaining. These are the dog days of summer. Well, they never talk about them. In Hawaii, they don't really talk about that. The dog days of summer usually come around October. Well, this has been a hard year in no small part because of a global pandemic. But in the midst of this global pandemic, Dad, we've seen the killings of Ahmaud Arbery here in my state of Georgia, Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, George Floyd up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And in the age of social media, these killings become viewed by millions and millions, and they create conversations at a level heretofore almost unheard of. And yet we're going to talk about today the types of discussions that America is having about race, ethnicity, the possibility of racial reconciliation are conversations that have been happening in America for quite some time. And you wanted to devote an episode to this topic, especially in light of Ralph Ellison's famous book, Invisible Man, and generally speaking, the writings of James Baldwin. Can you share for our audience why these two authors so quickly come to your mind? Well, Invisible Man has become something of a classic, you know, that extends beyond itself. By that, I mean, you know, it is universally recognized as one of the most important books in American writing after the Second World War. And it's held that position for a long time. I have to say, for for this particular episode, I reread it, and I hadn't read it in years. And so my reading now is very fresh and, of course, has some issues I can, we can talk about. But one thing I would say that struck me vividly in this reading and near the end of the book there is a scene of a cop shooting an unarmed black man and as i was reading that it was almost eerily prescient i mean you've been reading the daily newspaper there were different circumstances or whatever but the whole uh, surrounding of that scene and that episode and the uh, consequences right immediately after that, would strikingly... In so many ways, it was as if the book could have been written this year. It takes place in the 1940s. The book is really framed, as you just mentioned, by this riot in Harlem. The riot is a result of a couple things. One, 
at least it's a riot that really took place. In 1943, there was a riot in Harlem. Yeah, there were a lot, but there's one in particular, the Harlem riot, I think, of 1943. And there was a lot of tension, not only because of racism in general, but because there was uh, this awareness that the World War II soldiers, African-American soldiers, weren't being treated, and they weren't being treated the same as their white counterparts. And then you have, as you mentioned, the needless shooting of an unarmed black man. And so Invisible Man is really about an unnamed man who's thrust into Harlem. I would like to back up a moment and try and and remind the the subject of both uh, of Ellison's book and, of course, of Baldwin's work, being the black experience in America, could consume all of our discussion. But I, I want to make a small point, but I think it's not as small as it sounds. Ellison and Baldwin were writers. I mean, and as writers, they had an identity separate from their black identity. I don't want to say separate from their black identity, but they were also concerned with literary questions that all writers are concerned with. And that that really, we don't want to lose sight of that because it's a big factor in it's a big factor in why they are so successful and also in in, in their own personal histories. How did Ralph Ellison move the ball forward in American literature beyond merely the the content of his work, beyond the theme, but just the very style of his work? What did he do that was significant? I think one of the things that Ellison is really, Ellison is an extraordinarily gifted stylist. And when we look at the book, there are a number of different styles operating in this novel. There is at the beginning, there's this battle royal scene where all these young black boys are suddenly being exploited by this white business class to engage in a uh, round robin, you know, boxing match. It's just horrific. It's horrific. It's a horrific scene, but from a, I'm going to back off from a stylistic point of view. It's a tour de force. I mean, it's a marvelous expression of ex- exhibition of Ellison's skills as a writer. And apparently that scene was printed or that chap was pre-released, if you will, in a magazine. And so he knew before he finished the book that he had something that people wanted to read. Well, and then you move very fast. Fast forward, not very far into it, he has this long, this long scene where the invisible man, who's still a boy at this point, it goes and visits this cabin where, you know, there's this black family and there's incident of incest. And the black family is more or less, I don't know whether the sharecroppers or what, but he delivers that that scene in a dialect, shall we say, a Southern dialect, which is peculiar to that particular family. And it's, it's a very elaborate scene, a very elaborate description, but it is a contradiction in style between some of the, some of the style that's gone before. And then, of course, immediately after that, you see Ellison writing in a very, very controlled narrative style to move the, move the story forward. So all I'm trying to say is the man was clearly very gifted in his ability to alter and develop different styles. Dad, Ralph Ellison, of course, went on to receive numerous awards after writing this book. He wrote a number of essays. 
He taught at several universities. He died relatively young of cancer, but he never completed another novel. He was working on one, but hundreds of pages of the manuscript were burned uh, in a in a fire when his house caught on fire in Massachusetts. And so this is the only novel that he ever wrote. And he had a number of years to to work on it. How do you explain how do, how do you explain that? It's one of the minor anecdotes in the, in American literary history. I mean, clearly he'd written a book that was so successful critically as well as even commercially. And you know, everybody's expecting the world of him for the next book and one would have to get into the mind of the writer to understand that. I saw Ellison when I was in Wisconsin. He gave a reading. He was a literary celebrity. But, you know, his reputation really rests on this one book and, of course, on some of his essays. And I think now his letters have been very widely, very well regarded. For those who aren't familiar with with the book, it starts with a young man. He's a high school student. He is, of course, African-American. And he is the star of his class, and he receives a scholarship, a full-ride scholarship to a historically black college, and we don't, we don't know the name of it. Now, Ralph Ellison himself studied music at Tuskegee, but uh, we don't know the, the name of this college, but he gets there, and that's when he's, he's giving a benefactor of the college a tour of the grounds, and that's where he, he takes him to this cabin. The benefactor sort of demanded he'd be shown a certain part of the campus. And so he's this driver just trying not to make any mistakes because here's this great benefactor of the institution. And the president of this college is absolutely, uh, he is irate that uh, the, the main character, again, who's unnamed, but that the main character would be, in his opinion, so naive to show the white benefactor what he wanted to see instead of having the, the wisdom to lie or, or make an excuse so that only the best parts of the campus were shown. And uh, then he expels him, sends him to New York City to get a job and gives him some letters of recommendation to hand out to some white businessmen in the city with the hope that our main character can get a job. But in reality, all of these letters basically say, this is a very naive student who I had to expel. And so now, just a few pages into the book, if you will, disenfranchised from this white, just horrific, racist community, but even the, the black college, he, he doesn't find a home there. It's a very sad beginning. To go back to my tending to focus on literary issues. If, if you look at that, your, your whole description, in one sense, the book is a Bildungsroman. It's a very, you know, story tradition in fiction writing, a novel of growth. You take a young person from usually from the country. In European novels, they'd be from the provinces and in French novels, they would go to Paris and English novels, they would go to London. And you take that person on a series of experiences in the course of which he's in the process of learning. And so the experience of the novel or the experience of the narrator becomes the subject of the novel. And so at the end of the book, Invisible Man has become the sum total of all the experiences 
that start with the battle royal and end with the betrayal by the Brotherhood, which is really the Communist Party. And he winds up finally stripped of illusions and aware of all the betrayals that he's experienced. And we see him living underground, which, by the way, is another literary trope that goes back, pays homage to Richard Wright, who wrote a story, The Man Who Lived Underground, and which goes back to Dostoevsky's notes of the underground. So I'm not saying there's nothing original about it, but I'm saying it isn't a tradition of writers who use this particular trope to try to explore the nature of one's uh, individual identity. Right. He's left uh, with only himself to rely on in very small ways, trying to take advantage of an unjust world that he lives in. The writing is beautiful. Let me read a paragraph from part of the book where uh, an individual who left the Brotherhood, a man by the name of Clifton. That's right. Dad just showed me a copy of his book. We see one another. We have the same edition. This is on page 455. But this man who left the Brotherhood, no one knows where he goes, but the main character is walking along the Harlem streets and he sees Clifton selling a clown doll, which is really, you can tell reading the book, it's really a caricature of a black man. It's exactly the type of thing that the main character committed his life to fighting this trivializing and stereotyping of uh, of African-Americans. And uh, it's while he's, it's after discovering him trying to sell these dolls that he shoves, uh, he ends up shoving a police officer and getting shot for it. Listen to this paragraph. It's on page 455. His name was Clifton and they shot him down. His name was Clifton and he was tall and some folks thought him handsome. And though he didn't believe it, I think he was. His name was Clifton and his face was black and his hair was thick with tight rolled curls or call them naps or kinks. He's dead, uninterested, and except to a few young girls, it it doesn't matter. And I think the thing that really struck me about that paragraph, Dad, was this is a book called The Invisible Man about uh, a man who is never named. And yet, as he reflects upon the life of Clifton, he tells us more than once, his name was Clifton. He, he had a name. And that type of, as we look at the protests that have happened 2016, 2020, one of the things that protesters, and right now I'm referring to peaceful protesters, one of the things that they're trying to do is say, he has a name. And then he goes on a couple of pages later to, to say this about Clifton. He was shot for a simple mistake of judgment, and he bled and blood dried, and shortly the crowd trampled out the stains. It was a normal mistake of which many are guilty. He thought he was a man and that men were not meant to be pushed around. And then a few pages later, Ellison writes, if he'd been white, he'd be alive. Or if he accepted being pushed around. Well, I mean, uh, you know, so much of the book really is the invisible man's journey. And he's an innocent when he starts. And the thing is, he holds on to, he holds on to these innocent ideas. And every place he turns, he discovers deception or betrayal. You know, when he's working in the factory, there's the old black man that's been the caretaker there, and he betrays him and he almost kills him. 
so the, the brotherhood is a bigger section. And here I'm going to offer a little bit of a, uh, a subversive remark. As much as I, I admire Ellison's skills, I'm still of the, of the opinion that some of this could be shorter. I mean, there's a lot of, shall we say, moralizing. Now, the moralizing is really part of the explanation of what people are believing, what people believe, and what in the arguments for their positions. But I'm, you know, I'm of the school where some of it, I think, gets a little bit over overdone. That's when I say it's moralizing in, in what sense? The sense that you know the long descriptions of what are you arguments, what are you standing for. You know, and the the sermon that the black preacher gives at the very beginning when he gives the whole history of the founder of the college. I mean, some of it goes on a bit more than I think a reader really needs. You raise an interesting an interesting question, and I'm curious, as a professor of literature, you presumably taught about different genres, and presumably you taught your students asked ask the question, you know, why was this written? What did the author want to accomplish? And presumably, sometimes that led into discussions about what should the reader do. And I don't know if this is an official type of literature, but I have in the back of my mind a genre called protest literature, a type of writing designed to incite or to to move one to action. And what would you say to that? Were you leading into James Baldwin with that? No, I'm not. In fact, and before you answer, uh, let me just pull from... Invisible Man, page 579, he writes, So why do I write? Without the possibility of action, all knowledge comes to one labeled file and forget, and I can neither file nor forget. Now, this is the main character. Well, this is a very broad question, and I there's so many ways of approaching it. When I said I'm being subversive, I'm I'm looking at it from the point of view of a reader who has a certain stylistic, you know, bias, you see. That is someone who likes more simplicity and you know, let you know one of the interesting things about Hemingway, I mean Hemingway about Ellison was, you know, he was always asked why doesn't he pay more attention or give more credit to Richard Wright, who is of course the elephant in the room in this conversation. And Ellison would take umbrage because Ellen would say, I don't want to be viewed as a black writer. I'm a writer who happens to be black. And I take a lot of influence. I'm influenced by Hemingway. Now, I found that very interesting because Ellison seems to me the last writer that I would say would be influenced by Hemingway. But I take him at his word. So he saw things in Hemingway that, you know, affected his own attitude. And if you look at the at the uh, epigraphs, one is from Melville but not Moby Dick from one of Melville's short stories. And another is from T.S. Eliot. So Ellison, Ellison is a very intellectual figure. And I think that, you know, that gets into his efforts to really describe and explain the conflicts between the communist position and the individual position expressed by the narrator who thinks he's doing the work of, you know, the people, but is really being under the control of the party. You see, as far as protest is concerned, this became an issue between James Baldwin and Richard Wright. You know, Richard Wright, when I say he's the elephant in the room, Richard Wright's native son, was considered the Everest of fiction by a black writer up until that point. So Wright was something of an idol. And when uh, James Baldwin was in Europe, 
as an expatriate, he of course, of course, met Wright. He met Wright, I think, earlier, but he became, and then he wrote uh, a series of essays and Notes of a Native Son, which plays on the title of Wright's famous book. And then he, one of the essays is called Everybody's Protest Novel. And Baldwin had a kind of a, a conflict with Wright in the sense that Baldwin argues that fiction is not protest, fiction is art. And when you're protesting, you're writing, you're writing leaflets. And of course, when he writes that and publishes that, it's kind of like a slap in the face of the, who'd been mentoring him. Wright would say, every book is a protest. You know, the fact that you take up a pen and you start to, you know, write a novel, you're protesting something. So it's, a, it's an open-ended question. But historically, in American writing, it tends to be something that was pretty much restricted to the early 20th century novels like Upton Sinclair, The Jungle, or in the 30s novels that were protesting, you know, the great inequities in the country and the depression. So protest literature got something of a uh, bad name because it was bookended between periods of great economic and social distress. Dad, I bring it up because, in part because of that line where, you know, he says, without the possibility of action, all knowledge comes to one labeled file and forget. And so the reader can't help but think, okay, I can't just forget this. I've just read hundreds of pages of this experience, this horrific, gripping experience about a man who is not only in, invisible in the eyes of the world, but at times he doesn't know who he is. And just the existential angst of living life, not knowing exactly where you fit in. And so I think Invisible Man is genius on so many different levels. But this question of like, what do you do? I mean, just thinking about 2020, you know, I've got an African-American daughter congregation that is not as diverse as I would like it, but not homogenous either. Many white friends and congregants asking the question, you know, what should I do? Well, do what John Lewis said, vote. Vote, which is what some of the NBA players are saying. But vote, but not for the troglodytes. That's my position. You don't want to vote for the troglodytes. You want to vote for the people that, you know, will support a broad democratic, you know, uh, governance. I don't know if you saw this, Dad, but in, in 1965, there was a debate between James Baldwin and William F. Buckley. It was in Cambridge. And they were debating the American dream and how the oppression of African-Americans has, has hindered the American dream. And James Baldwin is the first to speak. And he delivers about a 20-minute speech where he says, you know, your answer to this question about America really boils down to your point of view or your sense of, of reality. He said, we all hold assumptions very tightly, so tightly, in fact, that we're scarcely uh, aware of them. And he says, he, I think I'll, I'll never forget it, but he says that, you know, when you're born, this is 1965, so I'm not saying times haven't changed, and yet I wonder for so many African-Americans if things haven't changed all that much. He says, uh, you know, when you're, when you're young, and you're you're black and you're looking around at all these 
white faces. He says it's a shock when you realize that the flag to which you've pledged allegiance does not pledge allegiance to you. Now, he was writing in 65. I mean, right, I think right after the Civil Rights Act had passed. So certainly a lot's been accomplished, but that's exactly what people are talking about today. But I mean, I, I go back to John Lewis, who I think, you know, you know, nobody experienced it better than more than he did. And he said to when he said to younger people, he said, if you think things haven't changed, he said, you're mistaken. They changed from the he lived through the change, you know, the world that he was addressing to these young people was not the world that existed when he crossed the Pettus Bridge. So, yes, obviously things have changed. But, you know, in a lot of ways, things seem to be the same, but they're not the same exactly. They're different. And, you know, you have to address the differences in its own time and its own place. At that same speech, James Baldwin cites uh, Bobby Kennedy, who said, it's very conceivable that within 40 years, and this is 1965, that we will have an African-American president. And James Baldwin brought that up, not to sort of cheer at the thought that in 40 years it could happen, but to lament the fact that here's a white man saying, you know, be good and wait, and maybe in 40 years it'll happen. That was Baldwin's take. And of course, in roughly 40 years, Barack Obama was elected president. I, I wouldn't take that view on it because uh, I thought, I think Robert Kennedy was the most inspirational politician I experienced in my, in my lifetime. And Robert Kennedy. And I don't think he meant be good and wait. Well, I'm, that's how Baldwin took it. Okay. I would say about Baldwin, Baldwin, of course, is today more, more acknowledged, he's more in the news than Ellison. I think Ellison exists in this one book, Invisible Man, but Baldwin's presence is much more readily available to many people and to the culture at large because Baldwin was, was also an activist, which Ellison was not. Ellison lived the life of a writer. And he was criticized for it, which is so ironic because he writes a book that is read and read and read and a book that calls people to action. So who knows how many people change the course of their lives having read Invisible Man, but he's criticized for just drinking in all the awards and all the accolades and all the university positions. You can't win. I'm, I hate to say this, but you know, people get criticized for the things that they don't do. They get criticized for the things that they do. Or Everybody's not the same. I mean, Baldwin took to activism naturally. It grew out of his essays. I mean, I think he was, uh, he, he, as an essayist, I think Baldwin is un, unparalleled. I mean, his essays are kind of part memoir and they're part intellectual probing of the culture and uh, of the psyche. I mean, Nobody Knows My Name, The Notes of a Native Son, The Fire Next Time. These are pieces that any young person, any person can pick up today and read without a dictionary, without a, uh, a guide, and be moved by. And do you, do you happen to recall what Baldwin wanted to see accomplished? Because he was, in this debate that I watched, Buckley criticizes him basically for being a revolutionary. Buckley says again, again, what would you have us do? And he's referring to previous essays or previous work by Baldwin, where 
where Buckley says Baldwin is basically calling for some type of revolution, like throw out the whole country. What's your recollection of of what, what of Baldwin's activism? I think that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. That's that's Buckley's, you know, rhetorical, you know, uh, rhodomontade. You know, he he's excess. Baldwin was not a revolutionary, but it was revolutionary to just say things like, you know, you know, blacks are, you know, systematically, you know, discriminated against, prejudiced against. You know, they have odds that which they can't overcome. People don't see them. I mean, Baldwin has story. Baldwin's fiction which I was never a great, as great a fan of as I was of his essays, but his short stories are marvelous. And some of the stories he wrote when he was in Paris, he was an expatriate, and uh, they're just brilliant. Baldwin was an artist as much as he was an activist. During the speech, he says something like, I built the railroad. He says something like, it wouldn't be too much for me to say, I built the railroad, I dug the canal, I picked the cotton and he goes on for two or three minutes, just make the point that, you know, he is one with all of his African-American brothers and sisters who went before, before him, paving the way for so much of the industry. By I, he means we, but he doesn't say we, he says I, he was an artist. It just had a, it had a rhetorical flourish. It was very powerful. And I think the, the difficulty with Baldwin for a lot of people was they could never decide whether he was more of an activist or more of an artist and how he wanted to be viewed. But I remember an essay and in one of his essays about Richard Wright, you know, he's lamenting the fact that he had a falling out with Wright because Wright took offense at the essays in which he felt Baldwin was essentially attacking Wright's work and Wright couldn't forgive him. And Baldwin was a very young man. And, you know, he felt like he didn't really understand why Wright even read it that way. So you can see when you're young, blame it on my youth, as we would say, you know. And so now Wright is dead and Baldwin is writing about it and regretting that, you know, he didn't do more, but there's nothing he can do and change it. And he says, well, he hoped he died in the middle of a sentence, as I would hope to die. Now, only a writer would say that. You taught so many years in, in a classroom, and your your classrooms, at least in Hawaii, were so unique in that the population was already so diverse. I I wonder, did you ever, well, did you, did you assign Ellison? I mean, who were some of the African-American authors that you assigned? We talked about this on a previous episode. I assigned Chester Himes, who was a good friend of Richard Wright, in whom James Baldwin knew. I assigned, I'm pretty sure I assigned, I always assigned Richard Wright. I assigned some of the earlier black writers from the Harlem Renaissance and the turn of the century, Charles Chestnut, who was one of the early black writers in the late 90s, 1890s. Did you ever have students who as they read, especially some of the literature about the African-American experience, whose eyes were opened for the first time to this, this reality that should be so obvious to us, that, that, that not everyone is treated equally everywhere. I mean, did you ever experience students whose eyes were really open to that and their, their jaw sort of dropping to the floor as you guys are talking about one of these pieces of work in class? Well, it's a good question, but, you know, students are not exactly prone to, you know, over-dramatizing their experience. I know. So, so, so many just want to get, get done with the class, but I just thought maybe there were a few. I would say that when I taught Richard Wright's collection, first collection of short stories called Uncle Tom's Children, 
It's a very powerful. It's his, his experiences growing up in Mississippi and trying to get out of Mississippi. That had a very powerful effect on students. I mean, they really have a hard time getting their head around this is America and this is the way people people who are American citizens actually lived and were treated. So that was one book I would say that, that students actually visceral reaction to. Right as a writer that people people react to that way. Did you take a sense of satisfaction from being able to help a student see beyond you know, their living room through a piece of literature? I mean, did, is that the type of day? I don't know how reflective you were about the experience of teaching, but would you go home at, at the end of a day like that saying, that was a job well done. I'm, I'm glad that, that you're, looking, you're looking at me like I'm crazy. No, it's just that's not, what, that's not what I did. But basically, I think the selection of books was my way of trying to open people's eyes. You know, the one thing I think I've said this before on the broadcast, the one thing a, an English professor can do is choose it and choose a syllabus, choose a set of books. And those that's the most important thing he or she can do. I know this sounds like strange. You say, well, it's your preparation and it's your classroom performance and everything. But it's the books, because if you choose, say, suppose you're reading 10 books in a class. If a student reads seven of those books with some degree of interest, that's a successful course, no matter what that student did in the uh, in the grade and the papers. If they read seven books and they actually are moved by some of them, that to me is success. I don't have to go and explain to them, well, don't you see what you just learned or anything like that? I'll give you an example. I read, I taught, I taught a tree grows in Brooklyn. I had it was a class in New York culture, and I had a I had a young man from uh, Central Europe. He was a little older, and when we were started the book, he kept saying, "You know," he says, "I'm not interested in this." He says, "I like something with a little more action, and this is a little too too blah and boring for me." And when he write his wrote his final exam, which was a take home, he writes, "He says a tree grows in Brooklyn was the best book we read this semester." So that person has learned by himself. It wasn't what he first thought. And at the end, he came to see something that he had not experienced. And that's what a good class does. A good class provides students with the opportunity to open their eyes. That's what a liberal education is. That's why when you teach, if an English class now is all, quote, protests, that is raising your consciousness, all the books that you're supposed to know because they are the right books for how we should think, you're not doing the, the, the class a service. You're not doing the students a service, I don't think, because there are a lot of books that require a lot more Dad, Black Lives Matter is, of course, well, I, I say, of course, I don't know if all of our listeners know, but on, on one hand, it's a, it's a political movement. It's a formal organization with a particular worldview that goes quite beyond simply the uh, African-American experience. But on the other hand, it's a, it's a statement that, that we, can all, we can all get behind, this reality that, that Blacks in America have in so many places been overlooked and oppressed. And so it's a statement to try to get to the heart of that. I'm curious, as 
for lack of a better term, a Jewish American. How has your experience in Brooklyn as a certainly religious and ethnic minority, how has it shaped what you've been seeing in 2020 as uh, America is, is once again trying to come to grips with our own history of slavery and, and Jim Crow and now what's going on today? Well, that's a big question. I would say, in this respect, the, you know, a word like diversity is, you know, is sort of a cliche and it's overused. But the way I, I understand it, it means the experience of people not like yourself. Now, if you grow up, as most people tend to grow up, they grow up in very self-contained or close communities where everybody is like them. Now, I grew up in New York, of course, and in Brooklyn, and I was exposed to other communities, but I wasn't familiar with them because most of my friends in my school were, were Jewish within a larger, larger structure. So I didn't know people personally. I knew Italians. Now, when I went to Wisconsin, which is what I'm writing about now, that was a different world because now I was a real minority. It was not until I got to Wisconsin that I ever heard the word Jude used as a verb. He Jewed me down. I'd never heard that in New York. And when I first got to Wisconsin, I was very conscious of myself as being different from all the people that were around me. So diversity to me is exposure. The more people are exposed to people who don't grow up in their household and are diff whose households are different than their households, the easier it is for them to recognize that, you know, your skin color is not really an issue. And I think that's what's, to me, that's what's the great thing about the, the, the 2020 protests, that all these young people actually understand that. They understand it viscerally in a way in which my generation didn't understand it viscerally. We had to, we had to have the experience to understand that these, these young people have it from very early because they go to school with people in different who come from different different classes and and uh, you know different ethnicities, different sexual persuasions, and they grow up with that, and so they have a much more tolerant, open, or I would say, uh, understanding of what it's like to be human. And when you look at the people, to me, that's why I say John Lewis's mantra "vote" is so important. When you look at the people who are opposed to this. They're all of a certain type. You know, they come from this, you know, you look at, I hate to be political, you look at Trump's rallies, everybody looks the same at those rallies. I mean, then they all believe the same things. And how could they know anything different if they don't ever associate with people who are different than themselves? And so that's, uh, I mean, I, I hate to bring in a well, no, it's no, I, it's uh, it's very. This is, I think, one of the reasons why this topic has been so difficult in twenty twenty is because it is very difficult not to politicize it because there are so many questions about what are the best policies that we as a nation could embrace to ameliorate the problems. Are there political solutions to some of these problems? What needs to happen with criminal justice reform? 
and so forth. And then th- those are very quickly, you know, political policy questions. I think for from my vantage point, obviously I'm a American citizen and I'm a voter, and uh, I think we need to be a good steward of our of our vote. So I'm I'm with you there. But I'm just saddened as I look back at the history of the church in America to recognize that for so many years, uh, churches in the in the North and the South either were actually supportive of racism or silent in the face of it when they had the the theological doctrine in hand to address it, but for various reasons chose not to, either because they genuinely thought that people with black or brown skin were inferior or because they decided this was a political issue upon which we can disagree. But if you're going to be a a Christian and affirm that everyone is made in the Imago Dei, you know, the baby in the womb and the uh, octogenarian, well, you've you've got to be able to say that we're all made in the image of God, the, the Ethiopian, the Jamaican, and so forth and so on. So the theology matters, but it's a theology that the church didn't hold on to tightly. I don't, I don't think people act on theology. I'm sure you disagree on that, but by and large, that's not what motivates people or drives people. And that's why I think, and that's really where Ellison's comes in. One of the things that Ellison points out is it's, I mean, it's the the narrator, the indiv- indivisible, invisible man who discovers all his experiences are all he can depend upon and rely on. And when he discovers that, they are he's been betrayed he has to live with his understanding of his own experiences and make sense out of that so people have to have people live people's experiences are important to them and they have to learn from their experiences and the more experiences you have in terms of in terms of community the you know the more the easier it is to to make sensible policy, to have sensible policies, and to have sensible, to have more compassionate and tolerant behaviors. I hear what you're saying. The, the the place I stumble is though I can look at the history of the church and find so much to be ashamed of. So many places that so many churches, where so many churches got it wrong for for so long. I also look at the history of America and I look at that debate between Baldwin and, and Buckley back in 1965 and think here it's been 55 years. There's been so much more openness, so much more knowledge. But I look around and though in many ways things are better for the African-American, I think things are pretty bad. In other words, you know, human nature is what human nature is. There's not enough enlightenment, in my opinion, that can come from the self to solve any real problems. So my my view of our ability to really make progress is pretty low. And so that's where, you know, I do think what you think about God matters, because somehow we need to break out of this cycle of looking at one another and fighting one another, and trying to prove who's best, and maybe land on the reality that uh, that we were made for another world, and so maybe we ought to find out a little bit about it. 
And I think it's no surprise that the greatest oratory of the civil rights movement was oratory drawing upon Christian themes. I mean, for someone who's watched the uh, memorials, especially the one in the Baptist Church in Atlanta to Lewis, I mean, you cannot help but be impressed by the the whole the the ritual and the and the spirituality and the conversation. I mean, and I'm I'm not Christian, but I don't have to be Christian to recognize, you know, a kind of brilliance and originality and beauty in some of that. And I remember the, the, the pastor of that was uh, of that church was being interviewed on the, you know, some day show. And they were asking him, uh, how is it that uh, John Lewis never became bitter? And, you know, somebody who say who's not a pastor, say some a secular person like myself might try to come and say, oh, well, you know, because he was able to accomplish this or because he was able to. Blah, blah. And, you know, he says, he says, well, you know, it was his faith. Now, that's a Christian who understands something about another man who is a deeply observant Christian. And that's something that would be not the first thing that would come to my mind. But when it's said. When I hear it, I, it makes perfect sense to me. I, I don't for a minute think, oh, well, he's just, you know, he's selling his own product. I mean, I think that's perfectly, perfectly understandable. And I couldn't have come up with that by myself, but I could see someone who comes from that tradition and that culture. So I'm not objecting or I'm not putting up any uh, roadblocks into some of the, the, the issues that you're you're saying about uh, religion and its role in, in life and in, in our our world. But I still think that, yes, you know, I, I'm, believe me, as someone who's taught for so many years, I don't overestimate the intelligence of the general population. But I do think, you know, some people uh, can make better choices than others and can in, instruct and inform people better than others and help people understand better than others. And that's why I say you vote for people who are not, you know, living in the caves, but who have some understanding of the world as it is, in my view. Well, Dad, I would be guilty of malpractice if I didn't remind you that the Christian gospel finds its roots in the Hebrew Bible. And so the doctrine of forgiveness was not a doctrine that was unknown to, for example, uh, Abraham and Moses and David. Yeah, although I always tend to say it's a Christian thing. Uh, I know, and, and there are reasons you say that, and uh, there are reasons to think that, and yet the, the reality is, as most things in life, is a little bit more complicated. Well, Dad, these, are, these continue to be difficult times, but thank you for shedding some light on uh, these two amazing writers, Ralph Ellison and James Baldwin, and even having a conversation that, that went beyond what they wrote. I really appreciate it. For all our listeners, nobody can go wrong picking up a collection of, of uh, Baldwin or trying to working their way through Invisible Man. All right. Thank you, Dad. Bye-bye. 